the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Jerry Boyer is, uh, along with Brian Westbury, one of the two economists I actually understand. And Jerry, you know, when I took Act 10 in college, I managed not to flunk, but I was pretty doggone confused. So you and Westbury are the only guys I trust because you both share my worldview and you try and break it down for us. So I read with great interest your brand new book, The Makers and the Takers, available at Amazon.com right now. We're going to talk about that at length. It's heavily annotated, but I've got to ask you first, the number that came out yesterday, 33% GDP growth. What's that mean, Jerry Boyer? Well, it means the best GDP, uh, quarterly GDP growth we have in recorded American data history. Um, So that's, 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 that's a good thing, right? Now we had the worst the quarter before. So it's like you and I have had in these ongoing discussions that this is the kind of recession unlike any other. Force lockdown, extremely steep contraction, and then extre- you know a really quick bounce back because it's not like a typical recession where where there's say um, a, you know, interference with the financial system. The system wasn't broken; the system was paused. And when a system, when an economic system is paused rather than broken, then you can unpause it. And we've mostly unpaused it. Might not feel like it socially, but we've mostly unpaused it. And so the economy's about two-thirds back to uh, normal output. And so are you optimistic about what that portends? Number one, you're, you're an addict to the prediction markets. Does that impact the prediction markets for next week's election? And number two, what's it tell us about the fourth quarter? Um, the fourth quarter can't match this because it's just impossible to match this kind of growth serially. Um, but I think the fourth quarter will be a good quarter. Um, so I think we're back to normal levels of output probably about the middle of next year. Um, it's sort of like this. It's one of these things where you go down hard, you come up quick, and then it gets harder, a little harder to get back to normal. Uh, I think this is in charge. This is in time to affect the, re- the, the election. But in some sense, without this bounce back, the election was lost to Trump. So oh, interesting. this kind interesting of growth take. gets him back in the game. And he'll be talking about it all weekend long, and I'm sure the media will be downplaying it. And I've already seen stories this morning uh, uh, following up on yesterday's data suggesting that it's not enough and it's already ruined because virus is back. Uh, Just objectively, Jerry, I don't believe that to be true. I don't think we're going back to the lockdown. I just refuse to believe Americans will put up with it. Yeah, look, objectively, I'm not a political person. I I might have political views, but um, if I forecast badly for a while, I can't I can't support my family. You know, so if I tow a political line, then what I'm doing is I'm putting politics ahead of my actual calling and my way of making a living. Objectively, the president's policies were a good growth mix. Once he you know, dealt with the trade war, you resolved that stuff. It was a good growth mix. COVID was a kind of um, an exogenous event, came out of nowhere. 
Um, we've largely dealt with the worst of it in terms of economics. There is no way the American uh, people are going to put up with broad lockdowns um, uh, from from their governors. Um, and if Trump is president, he's not obviously going to do that. So we've got a pretty decent road to recovery. I, there are some headwinds, but given what this was, we've done extraordinarily well. I mean, you have to grade on a curve during a plague. Uh, you know, it's kind of an amazing civilization that can basically go from here to here in six months in a plague. Um, that's that's pretty astonishing. The resilience is remarkable. Now I want to turn to the book, The Makers versus the Takers. And I got to tell you, I got a kind of an electric shock when I began it, Jerry, because for years... As a Catholic, the social gospel is meant you have to be a socialist. And that isn't true. And I want you to tell your story first, how you came to conversion and how you brought your economic credentials along with you rather than working backwards. Because I think people need to know the Jerry Boyer story to understand the significance of the makers and the takers. Yeah, well, I, I came to conversion. Well, I, was a, I was a Marxist. Uh, so I was interested in economics. Marxists are interested in economics, or they pretend to be interested in economics and are really interested in power. Yes. Um, and and so for me, it was perfectly obvious when I went from Marxism to Christianity that not just it's not just my worldview that would change or my religion, but that my economics had to change too. The atheism and the Marxism are tied up together. If there's no God above, then man has to become God. You can't have chaos. So somebody has to have a plan. Somebody has to be in charge. No God as ultimate providence, then you're going to have to have the state as ultimate providence. Um, and that was that was 40 years ago um, when I became a Christian. And during that ever since then, I've, as I've studied the Bible, I've also remained someone economically aware. Eventually, I, be, I became an economist, went to college, got jobs, ran a think tank. And as I read the gospel stories, I couldn't not make myself an economist. I couldn't forget. Just like when you read the gospel stories, you're a lawyer, you're a political analyst, you see angles, and you can't just like force yourself down into devotion and piety mode. Yet you ha you, ha you like see things that you can't unsee. Uh, so I've yes, this has been a maybe a 35 year journey of trying to understand Jesus's economic message. Um, and you are and against over spiritualization. I thought in the makers versus the takers, that's a very important thing. When I read the Gospels, I am a lawyer. I look at the Pharisees and I say, is he talking to me? Because uh, the Pharisees are basically lawyers. Jerry right. Boyer reads it. And your political views have changed dramatically over the course of time. But your economic views haven't. Right. You're still a free market guy. Absolutely. I'm a free market guy. But what I didn't want to do is impose my free market stuff on Jesus. Um, I've seen other conservatives do that in the form of, let me put it this way, you, you, had, you had a reaction, right, to the idea of social justice or social message in the gospel, because it's all, it, you know, in our time, that's always the left. By the way, yes. the phrase social justice was created by conservative Catholics in the 1800s yes. against socialism, but like everything else, the left stole it, okay? So we have this reaction, we, you know, when you read Jesus not carefully, he does sound like a socialist. When you skim over some of the gospel accounts, the story of the rich young ruler, et cetera, um, some sections from the Sermon on the Plain, he kind of sounds like a socialist. So what happens is the left turns Jesus up to about one quarter volume, and they say, see, he, you know, he gives away free health care. He's a socialist. A lot of times the right kind of reaches in and says, no, 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 and they kind of turn that down. Oh, he's just talking about your heart, so he's just talking about how to go to heaven. It's like, I, what I want to do is turn the volume all the way up and really hear Jesus's social message. 
And he does have a social justice message, but it's not remotely like the things that are put into his mouth by social justice advocates. There are two aspects to the makers versus the takers, Jerry, I want to underscore. One, I've never read the Magnificat, which is a very Catholic poem. Uh, Mary speaking in her response to Elizabeth, it's something, if you go through K through 12, you're going to read a lot because you're going to have Virgin Mary days, the Assumption and and, uh, uh, the uh, Immaculate Conception are celebrated in the month of May is Mary Day. So I've never read the economics of the Magnificat before. And then the poor you will have with you always is aimed at the ruling class. I, I, you know, that's a barb that that's important for people to understand. It is a prod. It is a prick. Let's talk about both of those. When did you start reading the Magnificat that way? Because that is really going to stun a lot of Catholics. Um, I started reading. I, I, I listened to it. I love box Magnificat. So that was part of my like regular playlist. Um, and I kind of got deep into my heart and my soul. And my wife and I were talking about it. And it was just like, wait a second. You, you know, have, have we ever noticed how political and economic this is? Um, I'm not saying it's not religious. I'm saying that our distinction between religion on one side and politics and economics on the other side is a modern distinction. Well, you interviewed Tom Wright about this. They, that was all an integrated thing in Second, Second Temple Judaism. Yes. Right? So, and he's been helpful in that regard. Um, we don't come to the, quite, the same conclusions economically. So Mary has opinions. She is an intelligent, she was and is an intelligent woman with strong analytical opinions about political philosophy. And if we really pay attention to the Gospels, we see her seeing things and then pondering them in her heart. She's deep. She's intelligent. And yes, she's political. She's a Galilean. She knows that the Judean ruling class has been ripping people off. She's got a problem with that, but she's not a revolutionary. She's waiting for God to solve the problem. And then she comes to the unbelievable realization that her son is the solution to the problem that her people have been waiting for. And she puts that in the Magnificat. And what's fascinating is this Protestants, and I am a Protestant, are going to have trouble with this because so much attention on Mary, but she's a major character. And if you line up Jesus's sermon on the plain with her Magnificat, she's almost, he's almost quoting her. She had an influence on him. She would have been a, the main educator. They're a homeschooling society. She was probably the more educated of the two between Joseph and Mary because she grew up in Sepphoris, which was a very sophisticated city. She was smart. I'm not saying she was educated. You didn't educate women, but she was around high culture and finance. And Jesus, you know, yes, he's God, but he still was he's still man. And he learned and he learned from his mother like any good boy learns from his mother. And one of the things he learned from his mother is not to trust that ruling class in Judea because they don't have they're not really following God properly and they don't have the interest of the people at heart, which they're supposed to. Yeah, we don't have a lot of visibility into the years of Jesus's youth. But you made me think about a new visibility into it because of your treatment of the Magnificat. Now, before we're out of time, and people have to go and read The Makers and The Takers, The Makers versus The Takers for themselves. And Boyer, by the way, is spelled oddly because he's from Pennsylvania. B-O-W-Y-E-R. B-O-W-Y-E-R. I, I, I know he's a Steelers fan. I'm not even going to bring it up. The poor you will have always with us. Tell us the context. What is it supposed to mean? Well, right. It's in the context of um, of Judas Iscariot denouncing him um, for accepting an expensive gift. But it's it's basically a quote of Deuteronomy 15, which is saying to the rulers of Israel, if you obey my law, you will have a growing economy. There is a growth imperative in the Bible. Um, I'm not I, w- I wouldn't go so far as to say they're supply siders, but I would say supply sider is 
is, and Brian Westbury's supply side, is tapping into a biblical growth imperative. But if you don't obey, you won't have the growth, and you also don't take care of the poor. So God promises if you obey me, you will never have the poor, uh, you won't have the poor among you anymore. But because you will disobey, you will always have the poor. This, again, is aimed at the ruling class. It's not universal. And the fact that this is in the president of uh, in the presence of Judas Iscariot, probably the only Judean among Jesus's followers. There's a big Galilean versus Judean kind of conflict. Didn't know that until I read your book, by the way. Hadn't thought about yeah. that. I know Bible scholars will know that, but it never occurred to me. It's like having everyone on your team come from California as opposed to Arkansas. Exactly. And, and, and Galilee was a decentralized economy, lower taxes. They didn't have the Roman tribute tax. They were more entrepreneurial. They were more growth oriented. They were small business. One archaeologist says you can't dig up a village in Galilee without finding three or four shops. So it was a kind of a shopkeeper, um, entrepreneurial society. Judea was a it was a company town and the company was the temple. And the temple is a political entity. It's a way of you know, extracting various taxes. The tithe was a tax. It was mandatory, physically, you know, mandatory. So Jesus never says a single confrontational thing against any wealthy person in Galilee, even though there were wealthy people in Galilee. Sepphoris is right next to Nazareth. It was the financial center of Galilee. We have mansions. So there would have been connections with wealthy people in Jesus's social circuit, but he doesn't confront any of them. It's not until he comes down into Judea, the state-centered economy, not until he passes like Chevy Chase, you know, and keeps going down south, that all of a sudden we start to hear this stuff about, you know, woe to you who are rich and to the rich young what? The rich young ruler, archon, senator, um, would be a good translation, member of the Sanhedrin, that we start to hear about problems with rich people because he's not denouncing wealth. He's denouncing, sometimes we talk about crony capitalism. He's denouncing wealth gotten by means of political pool and manipulation. It it, it does fit with millennials. He's denouncing privilege abused. And I I put it to you, Jerry, that the makers versus the takers will change many, many viewpoints of people who take the time to read it. Jerry Boyer, always a pleasure to talk to you each week. And it's great to read the makers versus the takers. Thanks for joining me. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Jerry Boyer of Town Hall Finance for townhall.com. We're in the midst of a hotly contested election with arguments about recounts, the legitimacy of ballots, and potential legal challenges somewhat reminiscent of Bush versus Gore. What should we do about all of this? First, we should be clear on what not to do. Don't give yourself over to anxiety. Worry does not add a single hour to your lifespan or one vote to the tally of your favorite candidate. Raising your blood pressure 10 points doesn't raise the vote count by even one point. Instead, work and pray. Work on your daily responsibilities. Build up your family, your house of worship, your business, your friendships. That's the long game. Then pray for a just outcome and that the law will be followed. Keep your health, your faith, your relationships, and live to fight another day. 
The battle for our nation is a long one, and victory belongs to those who persevere and who keep their heads. Peace be with you. I'm Jerry Boyer. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.